Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church, whether you're here in the room or you have joined us online. Either way, no matter why you're here, how you're here, how you got here, what brought you here, we're glad that you're here. And I'm sorry that I don't have white tennis shoes on. Uh, apparently, that's a problem, and uh, so I apologize for that. I'll do the best that I can regardless, uh, having not white shoes. So, uh, when I was a kid, I had this recurring nightmare. And I don't know if any of you have that. I know that this is a thing that some people have. But when I was a kid, I had this recurring nightmare as a kid. And it was really, really scary. And so this was the nightmare that I had. Uh, I would be running as fast as I could. And the reason I would be running is because I was being chased by this monstrous monstrous creature, like kind of like an alligator, but it ran really fast. You know how alligators are kind of like this, you know, like this thing could gallop. Like, it, I don't know what kind of a thing this was. I had a wild imagination as a kid, right? And, and so I was running and I was just running, 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 trying to escape this creature, this monster that was trying to devour me. And it felt really real, right? Because when you're in a nightmare, when you're in a dream, it feels really real. You really think that you're there. And the other part of this nightmare was that I was not just running on regular ground. It was like, imagine this endless swamp. And it's kind of foggy on the edges, and so you can't see if there's ever going to be an end in sight. And there never was, by the way, in this nightmare. There was never an end. And I'm running and I'm running, and these mounds are coming out of whatever liquid was down. And it wasn't like swamp water. It was like acid or poison, right? And so I knew I couldn't touch that, and I was being chased by this horrible, scary creature. And so I'm just running, running, and if, wouldn't you know it that the mounds are just close enough, so as long as I'm running fast enough, I could leap from one mound over the acid and get to the next mound. And I'm just constantly going, going, and I'm running as fast as I can, and this creature's chasing me the whole time. And it was just terrifying, right? And I didn't have this a lot, but I had it several times as a kid. And I was just running and running and running. And, and sometimes I know I would wake up and I would be breathing heavy and I'd be like sweating just a little bit. Again, because I thought I was running from this creature. Well, why do I say that? All, the only reason I say that is because today is actually the last sermon in our series that we've been in called Backstory. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story at, that is about a guy who's running. Now, he wasn't like, in my dream, running physically, like jogging physically, but you're going to find out right away when I say his name, this guy was running from something, but not in a physical sense like jogging, but he was definitely running away from something. And so today, we're going to look at the backstory to a guy named Jonah. And Jonah, a lot of us know, like, uh, probably a lot of us in here were like, oh, Jonah, as in like Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the great fish, the guy who got swallowed by the thing in the water. There you go. But my, my guess is, I don't know this for sure, but my guess is a lot of us in here, not everybody, but a lot of us in here probably don't know the rest of the story. And so I want to tell the backstory, the details surrounding the story of Jonah, because the details surrounding the story of Jonah are actually the most powerful ones and actually is the point of the story. And so that's what we're going to do. So let me kind of catch us up for the context where I'm going to start. We're going to start in Jonah chapter 1. That's where we're going to start. And, and the context is this. Jonah is on a ship. 
like a sailing ship. Remember, ancient world, they didn't have any motors or anything like that, so they're sailing. It's a sailing ship, and they have rows, uh, oars to row if they have to. But he's on this ship, and he's crossing the Mediterranean Sea, and he's got this whole crew that's around him, but the ship runs into this nasty, terrible storm. By the way, did you notice we just got done singing about a lot of storms in the songs? There you go, right? And so Jonah and the crew of this ship are in this massive storm, and the storm is so fierce that it's threatening to break apart the ship. The crew knows that they're in great danger. And so they're really scared. They're trying to figure out, like, what, what, where did this storm come from? What, what is going on here? And they discover, they figure out that Jonah's the problem. Have you ever been in the room and everybody looks at you and they think you're the problem? <laughs> That's kind of what happened with Jonah. And so they look at Jonah and they're all looking at Jonah and they're like, you're the problem. Like, this is why the storm's here. They figured this out. And so where I want to pick up the story is they're on the ship. The crew has just grabbed Jonah and taken him out on deck and they're asking him some questions. So that's where we're going to pick it up. Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 8. The crew says, why has this awful storm come down on us? They demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? I don't know if they gave him time to answer any of those. It was just like rapid fire, right? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? You notice that he's the problem. And so they're like, uh, we don't know your God, and so tell us what we need to do so that your God will stop doing this, right? Because they don't believe in the God that Jonah believes in. And so they're like, what should we do to you? So that's, that's their question. What, what, why did you do this, and what should we do to you? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get to the ship to land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God, O Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death, O Lord. You have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Notice that they recognize God has a reason for this, but they don't understand it, and they're about to throw this guy overboard, and they don't want to be punished for it. That's what they're worried about. So that's what they're saying. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights." Do you ever feel like life has thrown you overboard? Do you ever feel like everything and everyone is against you? Does it feel like everything is coming at you and, and it doesn't feel like you're going to be able to, to handle it? I wonder if Jonah felt that way. You know, sometimes um, in our life, our, our life seems to be controlled, seems to be dictated by our self-narrative. You know what a self-narrative is? A self-narrative is a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. 
It's the one you believe about you. It's the story you believe is true about you. So what's interesting is I don't know what Jonah's self-narrative was, but I was at a leadership conference uh, a few weeks ago in Chicago, and there was a people skills expert there, and she's also an author. Her name is Vanessa Van Edwards. Some of you might know who she is. She's gotten to be pretty well-known in the world these days. But Vanessa Van Edwards spoke about people skills and about people's self-narrative. And she mentioned that most people have three different types of main narratives, three possible main narratives that they live under and they believe about themselves and therefore it dictates a lot of their life. So the three narratives are these. Let me just kind of share them with you. The first narrative is the hero narrative. So this is the narrative where these people, if they have a hero self-narrative, they believe that they've come against a lot of obstacles in their life. They've had a lot of things come against them. They've had a lot of things that they've had to, you know, kind of deal with. But their self-narrative tells them that they are a hero, that they've been able to overcome it, and those problems have made them stronger, have made them better. And so they are kind of the hero of their story. It's a hero self-narrative. There's another one. Oh, and by the way, let me say this about the hero narrative. Generally, the problem with the hero self-narrative is that these people think, I can always do it on my own. They always think, all I need to do is work harder. All I need to do is, is research more. All I need to do is just buck up. All I need to do is just hammer this more, and I'm going to be able to handle this. This will be fine. I've handled everything else, and I'll be able to handle this. That's sometimes the problem with the hero narrative. The second narrative is the healer narrative. This is a very different kind of self-narrative. This narrative believes that your whole existence is to serve and to heal other people around you. This is a person that, that wants to sacrifice and give and pour themselves out all the time to everybody else. A lot of people have this one. The problem, of course, with this self-narrative is what? You would probably imagine. It's called burnout. These people burn out regularly. They are secretly frustrated and angry at the world who doesn't, isn't grateful for their help. And so they burn out all the time. Secretly, they're struggling, but they would never show it because then they'd be the burden, and they don't want to be the burden. They want to help with the burdens. And so it's this secret suffering kind of a thing. And then there's a third narrative. And this one a lot of people have, but they don't like to admit. This is the one that very few people would admit, but a lot of people, probably more people have. This third one is called the victim self-narrative. Now, th what's interesting is this narrative can be mistaken for the hero narrative. Because it actually begins the same way as the hero narrative. You feel like if you're a victim mentality, if you have this victim mentality, this victim self-narrative, you believe that you've had a lot of obstacles come at you in life, but the difference is you don't believe that you have overcome them or can overcome them, and the obstacles have not made you stronger and better. They've damaged you. You feel like you're damaged goods. You don't feel good enough. You don't feel worthy. And the victim self-narrative is this one where you believe the obstacles have damaged you and you're never going to be able to get out of them. These people always believe that they're not lucky. 
right? We use that word lucky as, as kind of a, a term, you know? If you're here and you feel like, man, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I, I, I mean, I, I win things all the time. I get things. It's possible that you have a hero narrative. If you feel like, man, nothing ever goes right my way. I never win those stupid raffles. Somebody else always does. In fact, it seems to be the same person all the time. I can't stand that person. Right? I know that there's a, a lot of people thinking it in the room. They're like, oh, man, they won it again. If you think, ah, never, never get there, it might be a victim mentality. And so we have these three self-narratives, and I don't know which one Jonah was dealing with at that moment. If I were to guess, and it's purely a guess, the Bible does not tell us this, right? But if I were to guess, at that point, Jonah may have felt like a little bit of a victim. You know, the storm, the crews against him, they ask him, what should we do to you? Well, you should probably throw me overboard. They do, and then he's swallowed by a fish, right? It's not a great day. And so he may have felt a little bit like a victim, but whatever he was feeling, I want to go back to Jonah for a moment, because let's talk about this. And the question that I have is, how did Jonah end up on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea with this massive storm and, and all these problems? Like, how did that happen? Let's go to the backstory. We just have to go back a few verses, actually, to the very beginning of the book of Jonah. It's very interesting. The book of Jonah ends in a very strange way. This is not normally how you would probably start a book, but God has different ideas, all right? And so let me just share with you, this is how the book of Jonah begins. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Just side note, this is not a main point, but kind of an important one. If God tells you to do something and you do the opposite, it's maybe not going to go well for you. Right? It may not involve a fish in a storm in in a ship, but it might involve something different. Right? But that's exactly what Jonah does. Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled... Did you notice that the Lord hurled? He didn't just drop it. He hurled it. A powerful wind over the sea causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. So to summarize what has just happened, God goes to Jonah and He says, Jonah, you're going to go to the city of Nineveh. He doesn't ask. God doesn't ask. He says, Jonah, you need to go to the city of Nineveh and you need to preach to them and you need to let them know that my judgment is coming because they are wicked and sinful. They've been doing some pretty awful things and I want you to warn them because I want to save them. Jonah, I need you to go carry the message. I need you to go tell them this. Now, how many of you would say, by raising your hands, you really enjoy confronting people on major things? Anybody in here? Okay, I'm serious. I I thought, in my mind, as I was praying through this this week, I thought I might get a couple of takers, because some people that I know, it seems like they like conflict. They're weird. It's okay. They're weird. If you like conflict, you're weird. It's fine. Be confident in your weirdness. 
I've got, I've got a couple of good friends, I'm serious, that I wouldn't even, I wouldn't maybe go so far as to say they like conflict, but they're good at it. Like, they can just say it as it is, and people are not offended, and I'm like, man, if I said the same thing, I guarantee you people would be angry. Probably because they expect me to smile and be like, you know, and they're like, whoa, he's serious all of a sudden. I don't know about you, but I don't like to confront people. Most people are like that, but that's not actually Jonah's problem. It's not that Jonah doesn't want to confront them. It's the reason he doesn't want to confront them. The reason Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh is not because he doesn't want to confront them, it's because he doesn't like the people, and he doesn't want to see God's mercy save them. Seriously. And you might be saying, no, there's no way that can be the reason. I, I promise I'll prove that to you here in a few minutes. Jonah does not like the people of Nineveh. Let me give you a little bit of historical context. Nineveh was full of a group of people called the Assyrians. Now, in history, if uh, you guys know, I used to be a world history teacher. I used to teach world history in the public high school, right? And so that's what I used to do. And so one of the things that I would teach about were the Assyrians. In fact, I would teach about the Assyrians, and then I would teach about the Babylonians who conquered the Assyrians. But before the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, the Assyrians were kind of like the main powerful empire in this region of the world. And so the Assyrians are known to historians to be some of the most brutal, violent people in all of history. In fact, uh, if you'd like some light reading later on today, uh, look up, I actually have a picture of him, Ashurbanipal. He was one of the Assyrian kings. He's one of the most brutal ones. And by light reading, I was just kidding. Don't read it if you only want light reading. If you want an easy Sunday afternoon, don't look this guy up. If you are interested in some of the macabre type stuff that they did, sure, you can look Ashurbanipal up. This is an Assyrian king who did some pretty awful things. I'm not going to share them with you because honestly, it would turn our stomachs. It was really, really bad. They were known, if you got on the Assyrians' bad side, things are really going to be bad for you because they treat people badly. And so he is one of the leaders. Now, he wasn't the leader during Jonah's time. He was just one of the leaders during the Assyrian Empire's time. But this is one of the examples of that. And Jonah knows these are the most brutal, violent people that we've ever known. They're enemies of Israel. They are threatening to Israel. In fact, Jonah doesn't know this, but in a few decades after this book was written, this stuff that actually happened, a few decades later, the Assyrians would actually conquer and destroy Israel and carry the Israelites into captivity. So his fear of them and his hatred of them was somewhat relevant in terms of how Jonah felt about them. Now, the fact that he felt that way was not good, but we understand. And so Jonah doesn't want to do this. And so what does it say Jonah did? Jonah hears from God and God says, hey, I need you to go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He runs the opposite direction. I have a map of this just because it's almost hilarious to see. Okay, so let's see this. God says, go to Nineveh. <laughs> Jonah goes to the port of Joppa and he takes a ship and you see that really long arrow that says 2,500 miles? That's where Tarshish is. It's, it's as far as you could possibly get without going into the Atlantic Ocean, which they didn't know where that ended up right? And so that's as far basically as you could get away from God, in the opposite direction of where Nineveh is. 
Jonah is trying to get as far away from God and what God is asking him as possible. Let me just pause and ask this question. Are you running from God? Awkward silence. Are you running from God? I meet people all the time who have said, I felt like God told me or called me to do this when I was a teenager. And they're in their 40s or their 50s or their 60s and they said, but I didn't do it. It's quite possible that we have people who have been running like Jonah for a long time. Maybe you didn't hop on a ship to get away from him, but you said no a long time ago, and you've been saying no ever since. Are you still running from God? Now, there's another part of this that I think is really important. It's the uncomfortable part. In fact, to be honest, Jonah is kind of an uncomfortable book. All four chapters are just really uncomfortable. But there's another uncomfortable part of this. Did you notice that as soon as Jonah jumped onto this ship and got a ticket and he's headed to Tarshish, what does God do to the ship? He didn't just drop the storm. What did he do? He hurled the storm at them. Now, this might be a little uncomfortable for us, but when we talk, we're talking about theology here, when we're talking about the study of God, who God is, not just about God, but who He really is in His character, this is really uncomfortable for us, right? Let's be honest, the theology of this really sits not well, because clearly in Scripture, in the Bible, there are two types of storms. The first type of storm is the kind where God creates it. He literally forms the storm and hurls it at the ship, at Jonah. He puts them under threat. God caused it. There's nothing in the book of Jonah that says otherwise, that this was just a stormy season or anything like that. No, God made the storm and he hurled it at Jonah and the crew. There's no way around it. God caused the storm. But then there's other types of storms, aren't there? Uh, I'm not going to take you there, but we could go all the way to the book of Acts in the New Testament. Acts chapter 27, 28, something like that. And the Apostle Paul is on a ship going across the Mediterranean Sea, probably in a very similar route that Jonah was trying to go, but hundreds of years later. And there's a storm that comes up against that ship that the Apostle Paul is on. In fact, it gets so bad that it actually shipwrecks them, wrecks the ship, and they end up on the island of Malta. Now, the difference between that storm in Acts and the storm in Jonah is that in the one in Acts, it does not say that God caused it. It was just a storm because it was a stormy season. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells the commanding officer before they leave, he says, Uh, I think we're kind of on the edge here, like it's the stormy season. Remember, there's bad storms on the Mediterranean in this time. Maybe we shouldn't sail, but they're like, eh, you're just an apostle. (laughs) We're sailors. We know what we're doing. And they sail anyway, and they end up losing the ship. That storm was not caused by God, but Jonah's storm was. 
So I don't know how comfortable you are with this, but I would just say that this is, this is very clear in God's word. Sometimes the storms that you're facing were actually put in your place by God. Like Jonah. Sometimes God is trying to get your attention. Sometimes God is trying to turn you the other direction. That's what he was trying to do with Jonah, isn't it? He was saying, Jonah, Nineveh's that way. I need you to preach to the people, to the Assyrians, because they're doing some horrible things, and my judgment is going to fall on them if you do not tell them. I've called you to do this, Jonah. You're out of my will. You're way off. And so he sends the storm and makes it impossible for Jonah to go where he's trying to go. He blocks him. But then there's other storms that just happen because we live in a sinful, messed up, broken world. Whether it's sickness, whether it's a person that betrays you, whether it's a parent that was supposed to be there but isn't. Some storms are just because of the brokenness of sin in this world. So the question that we might have is, well, how in the world do I know what the storm that I'm facing is from God or or is something different? Well, I'll just tell you, I can't probably answer that question perfectly because every situation is different. Uh, I mean, if you want to take the time, you can kind of come and share with me what you're going through and then we can do that, but I don't think probably now is the time to do that. But let me give you one thought that can help lead you down the path of determining what the kind of storm is. What will tell you everything is your posture with God. How's your posture with God? Are you like Jonah, where you say, God, you might want me to go to the Assyrians, but I'm not going. Thank you. I mean, it sounds like a great vacation spot for me and my family, but that's a no, right? I'm not doing it. How is Jonah's posture? His posture is a little bit wrong. With the Apostle Paul, his posture was totally different. He was actually on the ship on his way to go to prison because of him faithfully preaching Christ to everybody he saw. Different posture. One thing that will tell you everything is your posture. So sometimes... um, I don't know if you guys uh, in here who are parents ever see this or experience this, but sometimes one of our three children will come to Laura and I, or they'll call us, or they'll text us, and yes, we get those these days, right, calls and texts and things like that from time to time, until sometimes we call them, and sometimes we're like ghosted. You know what ghosting is? It's when your kids are like, yeah, no, not today, right? But when they call or text us, we do our best to answer right away. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes our children will say, hey, mom, or hey, dad, we just wanted to let you know we're going to ride our bikes down to this place, to Quick Trip or whatever, and we're going to buy this, and we're going to get it, and then we're going to go over to this house, and we're going to do these things. And every now and then, I mean, fairly often, Laura and I, we give our children that freedom to let us know, you know, we want them to let us know where they're at, and so that's a good thing. But every now and then, I don't know if you've noticed, that sometimes when you give kids leash, sometimes they take the whole leash. They run off, and the leash and the, and the harness and everything, it's gone. <laughs> Forget leash, right? It's, I'm not even sure where they are now, right? 
Sometimes our kids do that. And sometimes we have to rein it back in to say, okay, we still have a little bit of a leash. Right? We have some wisdom here for you. And so every now and then, I don't know if my wife, I can't speak for my wife says this, but my kids will find me saying this sometimes when they tell me what they're doing. I'll say, excuse me, would you like to try that again? In other words, let's phrase it as a question rather than a statement. Right? And my kids have started to learn. They've realized like, right, I need, to, I need to adjust and come at that a different way. Otherwise, it's not going to go well. What's the difference? Posture. It's how they're coming to us. It's how they're responding to us. Are they leaving the opportunity for Laura or I to speak wisdom into their decision? Posture is everything, isn't it? And when it comes to God, it is a big, big deal. All right, so let's push forward. How does the story of Jonah end? Again, everybody knows Jonah was on a ship, and he gets thrown into the water, and he's swallowed by a great fish. That's what people know. And I think he was spit out like a few days later. Right? Most people know that part of Jonah, but they usually don't know the part that we just told that he was supposed to go to Nineveh to preach to the Assyrians to save them from God's judgment. A lot of people don't know that, but most people definitely don't know how the story ends. And the reason is because most people don't like to preach about it because nobody really likes the ending of the book of Jonah. It's not a comfortable like, ah, oh, tied up in a bow and we're like, or riding in the sunset and everything's perfect. That's not how Jonah ends. Chapter 4 ends in a very interesting, very intense, very open-ended way. So let me just set up the context. So Jonah's in the belly of the fish, right? And so God makes him spit Jonah out onto the land. I don't know. That would have been interesting to see, by the way. Like, I know smartphones didn't exist back then, but man, that would have been good to catch, right? YouTube views would have been through the roof on that one. So he spits him out on the land. Okay, cool. And so now God, you know what God does immediately just, just after that? God goes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, let's try this again. I need you to go to Nineveh and preach to the people because there's judgment coming and I want to save them from it. Can you do this? Jonah has the right answer this time. He goes. Begrudgingly, he still doesn't want to do it because he still doesn't like the Assyrians, but he goes. And so he goes to the city of Nineveh, to the Assyrians, which is 120,000 people. We get that because Scripture tells us. I'm about to read that part. And he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to all these people. And guess what? The Assyrians repent. Now, we don't use that word very often. We should. We should use it more repenting. We talk about God's forgiveness. God loves you. He's already forgiven you. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Really cool. But did you realize that a part of forgiveness is repentance? It's where we agree to turn away from our sin. So Jonah preaches repentance. He says, you guys need to repent. You need to turn. You need to do 180. This is the direction you're going, sinful, wickedness, all this kind of stuff. And God said, you need to turn. You need to repent. You need to turn away from 
your sin. You need to go, you were going this direction, but now you're going a different direction, and God will show you mercy. Well, secretly, clearly, Jonah was hoping that they didn't turn, that they didn't repent. Again, he doesn't like these guys. And so he preaches to them, but wouldn't you know it? Because of Jonah's preaching, they repent. <laughs> they all turn. The whole city repents, and they, they turn to God, and they realize their, their wicked ways, and, and they repent, and they give up their sin, and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's amazing. And so God shows them mercy and decides, I am not going to bring that wrath and that judgment on these people because they repented. That's a great deal. Like, that's huge. 120,000 people saved. This is a big thing. But you know how Jonah felt? He was mad. And so Scripture actually tells us, I'm going to pick up the story here in a minute, but Scripture tells us Jonah leaves the city and he goes out to the east of the city. I don't know why he went east, but he went out to the east side of the city of Nineveh. So he's out in the wilderness, in the desert, in the hot sun, and he's just sitting there, baking in the... How many of you just love sitting in the hot sun? Two, two people. Okay, cool. Awesome. My wife says she likes it, and then she realizes, like, it's so hot out here. I was like, yeah, it's the beach. We put on sunscreen lotion so that we could do this. What are we doing? This is vacation? This is weird to me. You guys know how I feel about the beach. And you also know how I feel about the mountains. <laughs> Can we just go there? Jonah is sitting there baking in the sun, and he's just angry. He's sulking. You know what sulking is? It's when you pout because you didn't get your way. I'm angry, God. I preach to them and you save them. I don't want them to be saved. That's what he's doing. He's sulking. He's licking his wounds. And Jonah's out there and the sun is baking him. And so God creates a plant to grow over the top of Jonah. This great plant that has these beautiful big leaves. And, and it grows over the top and shades Jonah from the sun. Now, a lot of us are like, oh, that was so nice of God to do. No, God was making another point to Jonah. He was working the pride out of Jonah at this point. And by the way, Jonah's a prophet. He's like pastor of the day. And he had a problem with pride. <laughs> and God was teaching him. And so he creates this plant, but then the next day God creates a worm to come eat the plant so that the plant kind of withers, right? And so it's no longer good for shade. And now Jonah's sitting under the sun baking again. And he's like, ah! And he gets so mad, he gets so angry, he's so frustrated, he says, God, I hate this, I'm done living like this, kill me now, I want to die. Seriously. He just, he gets so angry, so mad, he's sulking so much, he, he, wants, he wants to die. And this is what God says to them, and literally, I'm telling you, this is how the book of Jonah ends. This is why a lot of people don't read the rest of the book of Jonah. These are the last three verses of the book of Jonah. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. <laughs> that pride's still coming out. Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? I don't know about you, but that's an intense way to end a, a 
story. By the way, Hollywood would have a field day with that one. You know why? Because the first, like the book of Jonah would make a great movie, right? It's a crazy story. But then it's left open-ended. I mean, talk about Marvel Universe material right there, right? Like cliffhanger, yeah, what? What's going to happen now? What's Jonah going to do? Like what, you know? And, and it just leaves us with this cliffhanger, but it leaves us with one of the most important questions. God leaves us with the question to Jonah. He says, Jonah, Jonah, are you seriously telling me that you're more concerned about your happiness and your comfort than with the eternal salvation and destination of over 100,000 people? I can just imagine, I don't know, I hope, that at that point Jonah goes, well, when you put it that way, maybe I'm off. We don't know, though. We don't know what his response was. But I think it begs an important question of all of us here today. Are you more concerned about your own happiness and comfort than with people's eternal salvation. It's a hard question, isn't it? It's kind of an intense, penetrating one. Are we willing to sacrifice some of our safety, some of our comfort, some of our personal space, to bring people to salvation, to safety. So I'll end by sharing this. A lot of us have heard about Corey Ten Boom and her story. Her and her family lived in the Netherlands during World War II when the Nazis came through and conquered their nation. And Corey Ten Boom um, and her family they had heard, of course, the horror stories, and they started to see what the, the Nazis were doing to the Jewish people. And, and all around them, some of their friends and people that they knew for a long, long time, for decades, were being you know, arrested and taken away to trains, and they disappeared forever, never to be seen again. And there were only rumors of what was going on, but everybody kind of feared what really was going on. And so Corrie ten Boom and their family, they decided that they couldn't just stand by and let this stuff happen. They needed to risk their own life and safety and comfort to help in some way. And so they knocked out a piece of wall in Corrie ten Boom's bedroom. And there was a space, I don't know how this, I've never been to this house or whatever, but I, I under, from what I understand, there was enough space in there that you could kind of fit several people, kind of almost single file. It wasn't like a room, it was just a space in between walls or something. And, and they broke this out and they covered it up some way so that it was very well hidden. And they would hide Jewish families in her bedroom, in the walls of her bedroom actually, and, and then they would smuggle them to safety eventually when they could find transportation to get them away from the Nazis. Now, what ended up happening to Corrie ten Boom and her family is somebody betrayed them. Somebody from their own community, in their, like people that they knew, friends of theirs, betrayed them to the Gestapo, which was the Nazi secret police in World War II. 
and they were betrayed. And so the Gestapo came in and they arrested all of Cory Ten Boom and her and Cory Ten Boom herself and her entire family. And tragically, as it would kind of turn out, pretty much all of Cory Ten Boom's family was either killed in captivity, murdered at the concentration camps, or died because of just the labor camps and the, and the harsh work that they put her family through. Amazingly, though, Cory Ten Boom survived the concentration camp. Miraculously, through a clerical error, they released her. She wasn't even supposed to be released. And what's interesting is, I think Cory Ten Boom died somewhere around the 1980s, 1983, something like that. Uh, but the rest of her life, after World War II, she spent the rest of her life preaching about forgiveness. She spoke all over the world. And I shared this a few years ago in one of the sermons that I gave. I won't tell this whole story again, but it's a really powerful one if you look it up. But one of the times Corey Ten Boom was, was speaking, and one of, uh, this gentleman came up to approach her after she was done speaking, and immediately fear struck her because she recognized that he was one of the German soldiers that had captured her and tortured her in the concentration camp. And he, uh, he came up, to talk to her, and she said it was everything she could do to muster to even touch this guy, and eventually she did forgive him, but she said it was the hardest thing she's ever done. It's one thing to say you forgive them from afar, but it's another thing to forgive them face to face when you're looking them in the eyes. And so Corey Ten Boom spent her, the rest of her life speaking about and talking about and preaching forgiveness and living it out. And what's amazing is, Corey Ten Boom and her family, you know how many people they saved? They saved over 800 people just by themselves, just their family. Amazing. Think, of, think about the 800 people that they saved and those 800 people who then had families and kids and grandkids and kids and grandkids and kids and grandkids after that. Think about the thousands of people that they saved by default. And the question I leave you with this morning is this. What are you willing to do to bring people to salvation and to safety? What is God asking of you? Whatever it is, it might be difficult, but it will be worth it because it leads people to salvation, to find peace, to find joy, and to find hope. Just like with Jonah, and the people of Nineveh. So what is God asking of you? And what's your response going to be? I hope it's not to jump on a ship and sail the wrong direction. I hope it's to lean in and say yes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sometimes it is hard to face stories like Jonah because sometimes we recognize that our self-narrative has gotten in the way. We believe things about ourselves that are not true. There's elements of truth in them, and so we believe them, but they've, they've held us down, they've held us back. Sometimes we recognize that there are storms in this life. Sometimes those storms are ones that we've created by saying no to you. Sometimes there are storms that just happen because of the brokenness of sin in this world. 
God, help us to realize that everything you are doing in our life is to guide us and lead us to greater peace and joy and salvation, not just for us, but for those around us. Lord, help us not to be so consumed with our own happiness and comfort that we allow other people to end up in eternity without you or going through life without the finances to buy food or, or the opportunity to have a job or whatever, whatever the needs are that are in front of us. Help us not to be so callous or apathetic that we would allow our own comfort and happiness get in the way of us doing what you have called us to do. Help us not to run like Jonah did, but instead help us to lean in and help us to rejoice when you use us to bring people into safety and salvation and hope and joy and peace. We are called to do great things, not because we are great, but because you are great. And you've made us special and unique for the calling that you're calling us to. Help us to say yes to it. We pray this. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.